Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 71 with my friend, Elise Bryson. You guys, Elise is such a freaking powerhouse. She has done so many cool things and has, has accomplished so much, including founding the, the website, thesobercurator.com, which I, I contribute to. And the, you know, it's just amazing. I'm going to let you listen to her and tell her story. I'm not going to ramble on about it a bunch right now. I'll ramble on about it after the episode because there's so many takeaways and I want to make sure you get them as well. So I will talk to you after the episode. But until then, here's my friend, Elise Bryson. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right, if you're just joining us, this is the Pokemon Hour with <laughs> Justin and Elise. Make sure you uh, subscribe and catch them all. But I, I do like to start with how I know people, and I I kind of met you through Clubhouse. I mean, I guess I did meet you through Clubhouse, but uh, I just I liked the content you were doing, and you were you were one of the first people I was. Like, I'm just going to say, let's collaborate. And I don't know what on, but I'm going to say that and see if it goes somewhere. See what happens. Uh, and I was like, oh, is that what networking is? Um, and, and now uh, I'm, I'm thankfully contributing to the Sober Curator, the lifestyle. I mean, what do you call it? Because I get really wrapped up in the nomenclature for how to describe it. Sometimes I call it a lifestyle magazine online or a lifestyle brand or a web, I don't know. Um, it's a really good question. What the <laughs> fuck is it? <laughs> I get it. Uh, what do I call it? I tend to call it a multimedia lifestyle brand. Okay. Um, I have, I called it a lifestyle magazine for a while, but then people kept emailing me and asking where to get a subscription, <laughs> which is super cool, totally yeah. flattering, but I don't have one. So <laughs> yeah. I get that. Um, yeah. Well, so that, and that's, that's about it. I mean, I know some stuff just from our, our discussions um, regarding kind of your past and, and obviously you're sober and uh, your, your past career choices and, and some of that, which I'm excited to kind of dive into a little, but I'd like to go further back in time. Uh, were you, you're in Seattle or were you born yep. there? No, I was born in a small town halfway between Seattle and Portland, but always in the Northwest there. Always in Washington. Okay. Oh, in Washington specific. Got it. I've, I've never <laughs> lived outside of Washington State. Wow. Okay. I'm basically an apple at this point. <laughs> um, what are you? An only sibling? Do you our only mm. child? What are the? What's the sibling order no. look like? The sibling. Well, I am the oldest, therefore the favorite. Obviously, um, <clears throat> I say that in front of my sister too, so it's fine. Yeah, you're good. Um, <laughs> My sister, I have one sister. She is three years younger than me. Um, she also contributes to The Sober Curator. She is the writer of The Daily Llama. Um, and she is a licensed addiction therapist in New York. Perfect fit. I take full credit for her choice of career path. <laughs> So you're the you're my you're my enemy just based on sibling order. What was that like uh, growing up like? having the younger sister was that a typical relationship of like don't bother me sort of like big sister stuff did you guys get along well what did that look like that's interesting um when we were little little like you know, under 10 we got along pretty well i mean normal fight stuff yeah she would take my stuff i would get mad she actually has a scar on her forehead um and my version of the story of that scar <laughs> is that i was chasing her around the house and i slammed the bedroom a uh, bathroom doorknob into her forehead um her version of the story is different but it doesn't actually matter because i'm always right so that happened. I also, I don't know if you remember when candle holders used to have that nail that came out of the candle yeah, yeah, holder. Yeah. You put the candle on to hold the candle. Um, I remember one time she stepped on one of those and I knew I had been the one to knock it off the table and not pick it up. 
my mom was a teacher at a private Christian school, a very, very small one where my sister and I went. So we were like always together. We were at the school together and like my class and her class maybe had like 12 kids each, like really small. Right. Okay. And then we would be at school together after school was over. Cause my mom would still be working. It was either that, or we were home being latchkey kids, but we, you know, we got along pretty good for the most part. A lot of like my parents' friends had kids our age, and there was a lot of sets where it was like there was me and one sibling and then my sister and the other sibling. So there was a lot of that pairing up that happened really naturally. It was probably when I got into high school that things really changed, and act- and then things really changed. I didn't really start getting wild until like maybe halfway through my sophomore year. And that's when things really changed and like the consequences of me drinking and becoming a party girl and becoming very promiscuous. She ended up getting the brunt of that because like guys that I would fool around with or party with or whatever, they would then like make snide remarks at her in the hallway and like give her a hard time for my behaviors. And that definitely started to kind of cause a barrier between us. And then because I was like the oldest and the addict in the family, I was constantly like stealing all, you know, I was showboating. I was always stealing. I was always, the attention was always on me because there was always some kind of drama in my life. And like, even when she was graduating from high school, I had gotten knocked up with my son. So I was pregnant. You know, it was like, I would just, I didn't mean to one up her. And I mean, I wasn't up one upping her with great things. (laughs) Let's be clear. It just kind of always happened that way. And we were pretty, in our twenties, we were pretty distant. My sister Uh, for a long time was like a professional student. And so uh, it's only been really, if I'm being honest with you, in the last year that we've gotten a lot closer because uh, she finally upgraded her phone to an iPhone and no longer had an antenna on her phone. Good Lord. Um, But so with FaceTime and she has a nephew, Uh, You and I both talked about how we have nephews. So um, in the last couple of years, I've, and I love New York. And so ever since she got married, I have made many trips to New York and um, we've gotten a lot closer in the last five years, but especially in the last year, collaborating on the sober curator and just FaceTiming more because of the pandemic has really brought us closer. So, which I'm very grateful for. That's awesome. Uh, You said your mom taught at the school. What did your dad do when you were born? My dad was an accountant for a, (laughs) yes, for an orthopedic office. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Um, And your mom, you guys all went to a Christian school. Mm -hmm. Um, How, what role did that play like religion in general in your household when you guys were kids? So both of my grandfathers were pastors. Oh, wow. Um, yes. Like on each so, side then. <laughs> yes. Double double whammy. Um, I never knew my dad's father. He actually passed when my dad was five. Oh, wow. Um, and both of my parents are the babies of their siblings. And there was like a 15, 16 year gap in between them and their siblings. Wow. So, um, so like a lot of... Uh, my cousins that are like a decade older than me are, you know, my son and their kids are the same age, but they're like 10 or 15 years older than me. Cause that gap. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I grew up in a very Christian home on both sides. Like we were at church on Sundays, we were at church on Wednesdays and then we were at church Monday through Friday because of school. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, and, and for a long time, it was just very normal to me. I didn't know anything else. It was just very normal to me. And I just went along with all of it. Um, and then getting, you know, pushed into a public school and being exposed to a whole secular world, basically. Um, I really then kind of went off on my own. What, uh, a, what year did you, I mean, what, like what grade or age did you go to public school? Did you stop going to the uh, a freshman, school? freshman in high school? Okay. So it was high school, school when you, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And did that have a direct correlation to you? Like starting to act a little wild, as you said, or was that, was there something else that kind of triggered that? You know, my freshman year, I, um, I still really hung out with all the, the church kids, yeah. um, and the youth group and was still very, very plugged into that. Um, and then somewhere in my sophomore year, I just decided that like, that's not, they weren't the cool, I realized they weren't the cool kids and I wanted to be a cool kid. Right. And so I started making friends with all the cool kids and the cool kids were partying and doing all the things. It was really the summer between the summer before my junior year is when I first started drinking and I, and I had just gotten my license and started to have a little bit of freedom. Yeah. 
And that's really when when things kind of took off for me. What was your home life like leading up to that? You know, my parents are both, they worked a lot and very, we're just a middle-class family in a small town. You know, my mom was, I mean, being a private private school teacher at a Christian school, she got paid like pennies. My dad was an accountant. So like our needs were always met, but we weren't taking like, you know, trips to Europe or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, they're still married. They've been married. They just celebrated 48 years married. I'm trying to do the math. 47 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And there's on both sides of my family, there are um, no divorces, no. Well, kids I imagine, I imagine when you, when you start adding pastors into the family lineage, uh, I imagine yes. divorce is frowned yes. upon and it's like, you're going to yes. figure this shit out. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, were there, so, were there times when you like looking back now as an adult and being like through relationships or can you look back and be like, Oh, they made it through some crazy shit. Or was it just always kind of run of the mill? It was pretty. We really didn't have any drama. There was not really anything. Certainly there were people in our lives and other people at the church that had like, oh, can you believe that happened kind of stuff. But like we, it was really, I mean, the only one that was causing problems was, was me. Really? I guess I'm just digging a little to find out what the catalyst was for that. Cause you know, there's usually something that that spins that off like even if you did it to go to the friend group because you wanted the you know the popularity or whatever accompanied that like what were you what were you missing somewhere else where that's what you were drawn to you know what i'm saying yeah well you know i, I see where you're getting at and i've thought a lot about this because you know if i look back now with the knowledge that i have now because you know hindsight is 2020 yeah Sucks, that doesn't addicty, it? <laughs> fuck, it totally sucks. That addicty behavior in me is kind of always been there. I'm very compulsive. Um, and like, uh, and I've always struggled with food, food too. And so like sneaking food and hiding candy was happening back when I was like nine, 10. So that um, deceitful sneakiness was kind of always there. Yeah. And, um, and manipulating, I mean, that's, I'm a salesperson, so that came very naturally for me. And uh, so I look at kind of those things and I see that like I had a predisposition to it. Um, And who knows if alcoholism runs in my family because in my immediate family on both sides, nobody drinks, nobody does drugs, very straight path. But who knows, you know, my mom has never had a drop of alcohol in her life. That's crazy. So, I mean, maybe one time in college. So, um, but... For me, I started to dabble in it. And then pretty early on, it was only within a couple of months of, you know, starting to drink and smoke a little weed. Uh, I had a situation that was really unfortunate. I got mixed up with um, some of the wrong guys. And um, this one night, thought I was smoking weed. Definitely, definitely turned out to be something more than that. And I mean, I know I've just never been that out of out of it in my life coherent like awake but out of it and i was abused that night and um, my virginity was taken and it was a very scary situation and and there was another girl there too and um so we both kind of went through this really terrible situation together that was really scary we couldn't get out of it it was it was bad and that for me was probably the catalyst that shot me forward because you know up until that point growing up in a christian home i was I was, I was only, my mom actually had me taken out of the sex education classes in high school. She didn't want me exposed to that stuff. Right. And I was simply told, you just don't have sex till you're married. Nothing else was explained to me. Nothing. Right. So then once, once the choice had been made for me by someone else, and now I'm only, you know, I'm no longer pure. It was like, well, then I guess it doesn't matter. Right. I guess it doesn't matter. And so that, and then that just kind of set me off on so just, that's really, I think what propelled me yeah. into a direction that I was probably going to get into anyway. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's a, unfortunately super common, like yeah, occurrence that, that it's an unfortunate thing. Like, especially, you know, in, in the attic community, when you hear people's stories, like so, so often there's some form of sexual abuse that, yeah whether it was when they were like really young or a teenager or, you know, even later in life. And it's, it's just unfortunate. And it's, it's, it's fucked up. I mean, yeah. So yeah, it sorry is. that that happened to you. Um, and that, yeah. And that's especially being from that, I can't imagine the mindset, you know, 
growing up in that and I'm not, I'm not religious. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm always curious about people's religion and, and what that looks like in their household. Um, but like you said, like you said, pure and, and, and that, that mindset and how you're pulled out of the sex education stuff. Like, was there, I imagine there was a level of shame associated with it just immediately. Huge shame, immediately shame. And in fact, um, I ended up writing a version of it in an essay my senior year. I was in AP English and I I don't remember what I wrote now. I didn't save it. Um, But I know whatever it was I wrote, it signaled the teacher that something had happened, right? And so he actually called my parents into the school and had me there and was trying to talk about it. And I was, I was just like, I did not want my parents to know that about me. Right. So I was denied, 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 denied. And then my parents, instead of my parents got really mad at the teacher, which it wasn't his fault. He was just trying to do the right thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. So it's just, they just really, um, there was a lot of shame and then there was so much that wasn't explained to me. So then I would be in these situations when I'm partying and whatever, and like all these things would happen. And I'm, I didn't know this. If it wasn't actual intercourse as I understood it, then I guess it's okay. I don't know. You know, it was a very, um, it was a very weird time and a very hard way to learn things. Has that pushed you uh, later in life with, I mean, I, I, haven't known you very long, but you, you seem like an outspoken person, um, in your sobriety and everything. Has that pushed you at all to advocate for those things at any point in your life? Like, like sex education and like the me too movement that really got a bunch of speed in the last few years has, have you become an advocate at all in the, in those categories? I have, I have, I actually have, um, unfortunately that was not the only time. The one time that I mentioned was not the only time that happened to me. Um, I can actually, there's actually about four or five times that four different five times, different incidents where it happened. Um, all of which were cases that I was drinking. And so I always thought it was my fault. I always thought it was my fault. Um, or because of the way I dressed, right. Because there was the way that it was, we were taught for so long. Stupid narratives that are put into Mm -hmm, people's minds. mm -hmm. Um, and, and while I know that in some of those cases, if I hadn't put myself in that situation, I hadn't been drunk. Yes, perhaps that wouldn't have happened to me, but just because I was drunk or just because I was flirting or dressed a certain way, it also doesn't mean I deserved it. And exactly. so it took me a really long time to understand that, but yes, I've done a lot of work. Um, I'm in the Seattle area now. I've done a lot of work with several local nonprofits speaking out about it. I've spoken to like a, um, I actually went back to the Christian school um, and spoke about it um, years back. And because my mom had just, my mom is retired now, but she worked there for like 20 more years after I, after yeah. I had gone through it. And it turned out when I went and spoke in the, in the class, um, there was a, a gal in the class that it had happened to. And then and she had never told anyone. And then she ended up sharing. So, which was great. That's, That's powerful. You know, <laughs> super powerful. Yeah. So I have, um, I don't think that I have been as much of an advocate for that as I have been around uh, recovery. But for me, the two are so intertwined. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, like we just said, like that's a, that's a catalyst for a lot of, a lot of people to, you know, kind of leave off there. Um, Mm -hmm. and so going a little bit forward, you, you get out of high school. What, what is it like? And this is a complete lens change here, but being in the, the Pacific Northwest, the early nineties, you're you're partying like it is the height of you know the grunge scene nirvana pearl jam like there is a lot of culturally significant things happening in the world around you are you conscious of that at all when it while it's 100%. happening I, if- I was all in i flannel <laughs> doc martens yeah i was all in i was all in um i was very into the grunge scene but i was also very very much into the hip-hop scene and i kind of had ran in two different circles and had outfits to change accordingly right what was the Um, hip-hop scene in seattle at that time well (laughs) yes i'm curious (laughs) well you know we had sir mix a lot obviously um and i had a i had a big backside so that worked out for me um But uh, I actually saw Tupac perform here in Seattle um, before he passed. So I can say that I saw him in concert. 
but yeah, I was just, I don't know that there was a lot locally from here, but yeah. I was, there was a lot of underage uh, dance clubs and I was definitely going to those. Oh man. There were so many those. of those in the nineties that just started popping so up many. everywhere. So I never many. went to one cause it just did not appeal to me. I was a punk kid. I was like, I don't want to go to that at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'd go to, I'd go to punk shows. What is that like? Uh, I mean, when you say you're partying and stuff, are you, go into concerts or are you just go into like house parties like what is what is this what does the downfall look like <laughs> so let's see after i graduated i moved to seattle and i went to seattle pacific university um and it took me approximately five minutes to find the party girls <laughs> maybe so like the first weekend i was there like we were off to the races and um with a half gallon of vodka down by the river and or it's actually a canal not a river but well um, it sounds like you did get well in school you talked about ap english and oh yeah i was so, great at school great at school i was i've always been pretty high functioning yeah and it's it's important for me to be like you know, I'm competitive. I'm a salesperson. So I, I needed to have the gold star. I needed to have all the approval. I needed to have the good grades. Yeah. But I also was really good at drinking and really good at partying. Well, and so. it probably helps it rationalize it, right? Because then you're like, absolutely. You guys, I'm 4.0. Yeah, I can I'm do whatever the fuck amazing. I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can basically <laughs> do whatever I want. So uh, a lot of partying in, in school. And then another unfortunate situation happened. Uh, I think it was my second trimester in school um, at a, a party. And it was a private, it was a private Christian college, university. Um, it was where my dad went. It was his alma mater. And I didn't actually even know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I just knew everybody was going to, to a four-year school. So I needed to do what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Uh, another party, it was an off-campus party because we weren't allowed to drink at all, but we were definitely not allowed to drink on campus. Of course we did. Yeah, another party where I got in another, you know, situation where things didn't turn out well for me. And um, that one really shook me and I stopped going to classes and and then the guilt that something like that had happened again that was very much not my choice and the guilt that my parents were paying all this money in tuition I, I wasn't even showing up to classes yeah. I just I couldn't handle it and so I ended up dropping out and then I went to International Airline Academy please continue I what is, is that exactly what it sounds like? Is it? Yes, it is. Is it like stewardess I, school for in the 90s? It is. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It is. Oh, my gosh. And I um, I found it in the classified section in the newspaper at my parents' house. And I was like, this is it. This is my calling. I'm going to go work for for the airlines. I'm going to I'm gonna be a flight attendant. And, and so we had to even dress professional to go to this three-month class. It was down in Vancouver, Washington. And so, um, you know, think about this. This is still like early, like 94. It's 94, right? Yeah. So I went and bought suits with the, like pantsuits with the shoulder pads. Yes. But, yeah. Oh, gosh. I was like Design, yeah, yeah. I was just living the shoulder pad business dream, smoking like a chimney. And I ended up getting um, an, an apartment at this school with two women that one was from Germany and one was from a small town here in Washington. And they were both over 21. And I wasn't, but that was perfect. And yeah. then there was another guy there that he smoked weed all the time. So like I made my connection immediately. The, uh, when we graduated, I, I graduated at top of the class and nice. I was so hung over from drinking the night before that I actually had to run off the stage in the middle of my speech and puke. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. But then I went to go work at United Airlines. Unfortunately, I was not a flight attendant because I'm a shorty and you have to be able to reach the overhead compartments oh, interesting. to help to help people. And although there are some planes that I can reach, there yeah, are yeah. a lot of planes that I can't. So I ended up working in customer service because, you know, this is before really the Internet. Yeah, so yeah. people still made their phone reservations over the phone. So United Airlines had a call center in downtown Seattle. And another girl that I had met at the university, she dropped out shortly after I did. So I talked her into going to airline school and then we got our first apartment together in Seattle. So we were working at United Airlines and we were working a night shift. So we worked like 3 p.m. to midnight, which was perfect because then we could party all night, sleep in and like Groundhog's Day, just do it over yeah. and over and over yeah. and over again. That's like the restaurant yeah. industry. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you travel at all because of the perks of the job at that point? Or were you just uh, you know, working? 
the right after I started, um, when I started, I, we were going to be paid $18 an hour. Now, back in 1994, yeah, that was really good. For right? sure. Like living the dream. And Shit, then 2008, I would have been excited about it. Right. And then it, um, like a week or two after I started, United Airlines did an employee buyout, which means I got a bunch of stock, but my hourly rate dropped down to $12 an hour, which was still great yeah. in 1994, yeah, right? Yeah. For an 18 year old 19 year old whatever i was um so but and we could travel for basically free you know you just had to pay the taxes but then if we got to a city it's like we didn't really have any other money after paying rent and all those things so i traveled a little bit but i only worked there for about a year and then there was a guy in our apartment building that of course we partied with and he was working for at&t uh in the pager department and so they were paying more money than united airlines was so then her and i both got jobs and then i was working customer service activating pagers that is amazing i know i know (laughs) talk about jobs that do not exist anymore (laughs) right and it was there that alphanumeric messaging which is what we know as texting today for anyone listening that's really young um alphanumeric messaging came out and the bigger pagers and then even while i was there the phone started coming out that had the pager texting in the phone um and it was there that i got pregnant with my son um and so i worked there through my pregnancy and even after i had him they actually had set me up to work from home, which was very, like, very forward back then. Yeah. My son was born in 96. Um, so I worked from home for a bit, and then it became pretty clear pretty early on after I returned to work that I was not going to be able to stay with his dad. And so at that point, I quit that job, and I packed up my baby and went back to my parents in Centralia. Um, and you're still drinking at this point. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I didn't drink during my pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I think I had I turned 21 when I was like uh, five or six months pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I had like two wine co- coolers and got completely shit faced. And I might have smoked weed a couple of times. But yeah. for the most part, I just completely, you know, having another human inside me was enough to keep me yeah. on the straight and narrow. Yeah, yeah. But man, as soon as he came out, like it was on like Donkey Kong. What? Yeah. What does that look like then as a new mother? And going back to the, do you try to jump back into the kind of party life you were doing before? Well, it was a lot of partying at home and like people coming over to our house partying. Um, And at this point, like, you know, video games were still very much part of, I I grew up on Atari, right? So I think at that time we were really into the, was it the Sega Saturn? Was that it? Saturn and Genesis and Sega CD. Yeah. 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 We were, we had the Saturn and so we were really into that. So it was a lot of drinking, smoking at home kind of a thing. Were your parents Um, raising your kid at that point more than you were when he was like an infant? Not, no, not when he was little because I was still in Seattle and they were still in Centralia. But when he was probably mm, three months, maybe four months, I was working four days a week, but 10 hour shifts. And his dad was staying home with him because he was unemployed at the time. Uh, he lost his job like right around when we had him. Uh, and so uh, that quickly became, it became really clear that that was not a, a viable situation. I was yeah. very concerned for my son's well being during the day when I was gone. And so I called my parents and it was like, I'm pretty sure they had a U haul like on hold because I mean, they were there like, that was the call they had been praying for. Right. Yeah. And um, so I moved back in with my parents. And so for that first year, basically of my son's life, I didn't work. I just worked out to MTV workout videos and dressed my kid up in little outfits and scrapbooked. And I didn't drink. I didn't party. I just really just did the mom thing until my parents were kind of like, okay, this is cute and everything, but you need to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you know that I am a fierce advocate for therapy. All right, let's face it, this whole show does not exist without the leaps and bounds that I've been able to make in therapy. And that's why I am so proud to have BetterHelp sponsor this show. Ask yourself this question. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Or is is preventing you from achieving your goals? You know, I've spent time in therapy learning to rein in my need for external validation, and it's a big need. Uh, But BetterHelp will assess your needs match you with your own licensed professional therapist, maybe even me one day, 
and there is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's like 15,000 plus counselor network. That's a lot of counselors, which may not be locally available in many areas. You know, they did a whole report on this and it's available for clients worldwide. So when you sign up, you can start communicating within 48 hours. And then if you're like me, you know, are you getting those random light bulb moments like I do? You're laying in bed and you're like, oh, uh, well, with BetterHelp, you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule your weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with traditional therapy. And guys, I know that waiting room awkwardness. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. No more awkward therapist breakups if you and your counselor aren't a match. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash friendrequest. That's BetterHelp and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for my friends out there, my friend request listeners, if you will. You get 10% off your first month of counseling when you visit betterhelp.com slash friend request. That's betterhelp.com slash friend request. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. So, yeah, I mean, what walk me through, because you've been sober for how long? How many years? 15 years. I got so, sober when I was 30. Okay. So... What is what does that look like then the next decade and a half? Because I know when do you start getting into like journalism as a career? So after when my parents said I had to get a job, the first thing I did was um, I got a job as a bank teller. Okay. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, and at that point, my son's dad had gotten married. And so and she's great stepmom. Her and I are still really close today. And so they were taking my son every other weekend, which worked out great because I was I became full club girl. And I had a lot of friends that lived in Seattle. So I would drive him up to Seattle to stay with them. And then I would stay the weekend in club. And then the weekends where they where he didn't go to his dad's, he would go to my parents and I would party just in my hometown. So um, I was a bank teller for a while. And then I got a job at a car stereo place because they had cell phones and pagers and car stereos and CB radios. Yeah. And when I was working there, a gal that I had gone to high school with, um, she was a year older than me. She would come in every week and do our ads for the newspaper. And one time she came in and she was like, hey, I got a job at a different newspaper up north. You should apply for my job at the newspaper. And I was like, I don't read the newspaper. Are you kidding me? And I don't know anything about advertising. I don't think so. And she was like, listen, you know how to sell. You're personable. You can talk people into things. That's really all you need to know. And it definitely makes more money than you're making here. And I'm like, well, don't bury the headline. Just lead with that next time, right? (laughs) So... I applied. I pulled out one of those pantsuits with the big shoulder pads and went and applied and got the job. And I just took to it like a fish to water. I just, just sales was my jam. And so I worked at that small newspaper in Centralia from the time my son was probably three until he was nine. So about six, seven years. Um, And I just, I quickly became the top salesperson. And there I really learned a lot about um, advertising and marketing and event sponsorships, even though it was on a very small town scale. And so, and being an outside salesperson, you know, if I was hungover, no big deal. I just needed to drop my kid off at daycare, show up in the office and look like I was working. And then I would just go home and go back to bed. And because I've always been like, it's, I've always been a top performer. I could do my job like five hours a week and I could spend the rest of the week like sleeping or doing whatever I wanted. So I did great there. And then um, it all kind of, you know, I functioned, some bad things would happen. I would swear off drinking and drugs for a couple of weeks and then I would 
you know, get right back into it. So I was just pretty much a high functioning drunk um, with a lot of recreational drug use for all of my 20s. And I kept my lives like very compartmentalized. So, you know, I was still volunteering. Now my son was going to the Christian school where my mom was still a teacher. And I was like PTA and helping them. But I was also like at the dive bar sleeping with any guy that I wanted to. So I just was like juggling two different worlds. And it started to become, I started burning bridges and drama and yeah. worlds started colliding and it wasn't working. Well, that's what I was so wondering, I like up- what kind of bleed over do you get from mom Elise to like party Elise? Like was yeah. there, I mean, are there things you look back on and you're like, oh my, like, I can't believe my son saw this, that, or whatever it looked like. You know, I was really good about not um, parting around him because he was going to his dad's for the weekend or my parent. I would take him to my parents. What he, what he really, uh, what he missed out on is he, he was stuck with hungover Elise, (laughs) you know, and I would sleep when I should really be hanging out with him or doing things with him. Um, or the irritability of the hangover. So he really had more of that because I was pretty good about not partying around him or until he went to bed, right? And so one day I just woke up and was like, this isn't working. Like, I got to get out of here. And so I thought, I know, I'll move back to Seattle. I'll just apply at the Seattle Times because I work at a newspaper here so I can work at a newspaper there. He'll be closer to his dad and his stepmom. I can get a clean slate, And so from the time that I woke up just one day and was like, okay, we're not going to live here anymore. And 30 days later, I was living in Seattle, working at the Seattle Times. And that's really where my drinking took a very sharp turn. And instead of, because I was a very social drinker, and I didn't drink every day of the week. I was a binge drinker. When I drank, I couldn't stop. But I could go, you know, I could go days without it. I couldn't go weeks without it. Let's not be crazy. But um, I could go without it. Um, but I was also, I blacked out a lot. So um, cocaine keeps you from blacking, blacking out. Um, so that's really where my drinking took a turn. And it, it took a turn really fast. And drinking at home alone and a home alone with my kid. And and that got me in some situations that I got scared and was like, I, I could tell I was I, I was losing control of the situation and I hadn't lost anything yet. Like I had him, I had a house, I had a car, I had a license, I had a job, but we were very paycheck to paycheck. And I just was like, I knew that just at any moment a ball was going to drop and it was going to be bad. Yeah. And so that's, I, I ended up checking myself into an outpatient program. I didn't go to inpatient, but I went to outpatient. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah. Going back to hindsight, um, do you look back and see, like, when you when you say that, oh, I'm going to move to Seattle, I'll get a job at the newspaper, in my mind, I'm hearing, like, I'm going to go back to where I partied the most and, like, got, and, like, and it'll be fine there instead of, like, yeah. oh, wait, I'm putting myself in the environment that I, like, where that side of me thrives. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I just... I'd already slept with any, everyone that I wanted to sleep with in this small town. I was like, I gotta, I got, I need, I need, I need fresh meat. I need a bigger, I need a bigger pool. Right. But I also, you know, I was 30, excuse me. And I really, um, I was really good at my career and I really wanted, and I was passionate about what I was doing and I was really wanting to advance that. I mean, the month that I checked into outpatient, I was salesperson of the month. So like I was still really able to function and, and marketing, advertising and sales. It's a very heavy drinking, drinking industry, just like restaurant industry. Right. It's very similar. Um, So I was excelling even while I was deteriorating. Just again, kind of shifting a little bit. At this point, are you still doing sales? Are you are you, are you writing? Um, uh, I'm not doing either. Well, I'm. I guess technically sales. So after I was at the newspaper for a couple of years, and then I went and worked at a mag- Seattle's largest lifestyle magazine, and I was in sales there for about three years, and then I advanced in management very quickly and ended up being the publisher of the magazine, okay. which I oversaw the marketing department, the sales department, and the distribution departments, and then I worked in collaboration with the editor who managed the editorial department. So, um, so it was really a 
sales driven job. Um, But I was no longer the one selling unless I was involved in like big deals. So I was at the magazine for a total of, it was close to a decade. And then uh, I became a full blown workaholic. Like my career became my entire identity and I was sober. And so I was just burning the candle at every possible end. And um, at 10 years sober, I ended up having emergency heart surgery. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pause there because I want to, I'm going to, I want to circle back to that, obviously. But, uh, I I was just curious when you were in college before you went to the, the airline school, did you, what were you planning on majoring in and graduating in? I hadn't claimed anything. I just, I was, I just signed up and was taking just average classes. So the like marketing and sales stuff just kind of happened naturally because you Mm -hmm. were hustling and and doing your thing. Okay. I actually Uh, thought I might, might've been an actress. So, well, you mentioned the AP English and the essay you wrote. So I wasn't sure if like you ended up doing any, any like actual writing at any of the places that you were at or if it was just the sales thing. Okay. That's what I was curious about there before, before we get to your emergency heart surgery. So you got sober, your son's 14 at that point. If I did my math. When I got first. sober, uh, my son was nine. Oh, he was nine. He's, 20, he's 24 now. Mm-hmm. I can't do math. That's not important. It's okay. Um, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I think I was going by. Dec- you can't be good looking and do math at hey, the same how time. How dare you? Justin. I'm not good looking. Um, <laughs> I'm a great mathematician. The, okay. Then what is, what does that look like when you, when you have to get emergency heart surgery? You said you're sober for 10 years. Is he out of the house at that point? No. So he had, um, he had just graduated from high school. Yeah. He was 18 when that happened. And I had been telling him cause we lived about 45 minutes North of downtown Seattle. So I had had a pretty hellacious commute for all those years. I was like, listen, dude, this, the moment you graduate, we are out of the burbs. I am moving to the city. I am not doing this commute anymore. And so we had just moved and it was actually the week that I moved that I started having I thought they were panic attacks. I didn't know what they were. Um, It turned out I was having anginas, which is a very unfortunate word, if you ask my opinion. (laughs) But nobody knew what it was. And because my cholesterol was fine and my blood pressure was fine, and at the time I didn't know that there was heart disease in my family, it was like nobody could kind of figure out what was going on. I'd had a, a trip to the ER. I had one time where I had to call 911 and they came to the house. I ended up going in for a stress test and had an angina in the middle of the stress test, which is basically like a precursor to a heart attack. Yeah. But I mean, thank God you had it during that test. Exactly. Exactly. And so I ended up being rolled into heart surgery that day. Um, What they found out was that my left artery, which is um, commonly known as the widow maker, because if it it gets blocked, usually people just die instantaneously. Um, Mine was 95% blocked. Wow. And so it was probably a combination of all the years of alcohol and drugs. The fact that I had been a smoker for most of those years, I quit smoking when I was 33 Uh and I smoked since I was 16 uh, Marlboro menthol lights or Newport's. Obviously important details to the story. Yeah. Well, um, hey, if then, any, any smoker knows, like, you're not fucking around right? if you're smoking Newports. I'm not, I'm not fucking around. That's right. And, <laughs> um, and, then, and then being a workaholic in a high-stress job, working, uh, it was a pretty toxic uh, work environment. And so all of that combined just, just is, is, it was, you know, that was the outcome. That's crazy. And, and uh, so they put a stent in my, um, my left artery and I was home the next day. And that's a real mind trip to have heart surgery and then be back on your couch within 24 hours. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. I'd be like, no, leave me here. No, I think me. I should stay. Yeah. <laughs> but my son was actually really sick at the same time. Oh, perfect. And uh, <laughs> two days later, he had to go in for an emergency MRI and he got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Jeez. And then about a month after that, I tripped and fell. I was wearing Birkenstocks and I had gone to yoga, two things I will never do again. And anyway, I was at the gas station and I tripped and fell and my head hit one of those pillars that keeps the cars from hitting the gas pump. 
got a concussion, had short-term memory loss. And then about a month after that, my son went in to have this major surgery because of um, he had been undiagnosed with Crohn's for so long. We were in the hospital for about a week and then got out of the hospital. And uh, the day after getting out of the hospital, our four-year-old dog had to go to the emergency vet. He had eaten one of the squeakers out of a dog toy and um, he died. Jesus. And that was it. That was it. I was like, I'm not, I'm done. I'm the dog dying. It was it for me. Like I was managed. I was kind of managing heart surgery and kind of managing the Crohn's, but the dog dying, that was a tipping point for me. I was like Elise out. Right. And so I cashed in all my vacation time, which I had tons of, cause I was such a workaholic and took like six or six or so weeks off. I knew when I took that time off, I wasn't going back and I, and I didn't go back. What? And that was it. That's wow. Where, oh, oh, curious. Did you go anywhere for those six weeks? <laughs> we went to the beach. We went to the Oregon coast, which is beautiful. Um, we did that. We got another dog because within two weeks of not having a dog, like I just couldn't handle it. So yeah. it's very quiet, got, right? Like it's a, yeah, it's, it's very quiet, strange, and, eerie. And, and we both had been through so much and like dogs, you know, pets are so comforting. And um, my son just really wanted another dog immediately. And it was like, well, this is the perfect time. I'm home. I can train it. So that yeah. makes sense. And then didn't go back to that job and just decided to take, you know, the next year off. Um, I ended up not taking the full year off, but I did take a good solid six months of just nothing. And it turns out, I am great at not working. <laughs> like I am really good at I it. I excel at that. Um, I excel at that. What is, I, I have so many questions about this, this timeline, not timeline, but this period of time in your life. Um, so from when you get sober until then, until your everything blows up, um, what's your relationship like with your son? It's great. You know, it's just always been him and I. Um, his dad and the stepmom got divorced shortly after, like within a year of us moving to back to Seattle. Um, and so, and he has a brother, um, they, they had a son, his oh. brother Jackson. And, um, so her and I kind of formed an alliance. We lived close to each other. We did birthdays together. We took turns babysitting. Um, you know, uh, our parents and her parents became friends. Did that friendship so, surprise you? You know, it'd be funny because her and I would even go out together and yeah. people would be like, so, so how do you guys know each other? And we're like, same baby daddy. Um, I will say he has great taste in women. I mean, obviously. Hey. Uh, and he was, you know, his dad wasn't really around. There was a couple years we didn't hear from him at all. And um, so it was just me and my son. And so, and I don't know, I think maybe I was a teenage boy on the inside because I loved everything he loved superhero movies, amusement parks, video games. So, you know, and because I was, you know, I was 20 when I got pregnant. So yeah. it's not like I, you know, I was young enough to be his sister, but I, when we would go out in public, I would always be like, I'm going to tell your mom, I'm going to tell mom when we get home. And he was like, that joke's not funny. You are my mom. <laughs> but you know, I was the cool mom. I was the youngest mom out of all of his friends' moms. Yeah. And so we just had a lot of fun together playing rock band. And, and he, when I got sober, I was, I was so honest with him about everything, like just everything. And, and, um, he, he would go places with me where I went for recovery and I was just, I was very honest about it and just very open. And so we're very close. I that's mean, awesome. and yeah, so our relationship has always been really good. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I wonder, so, and I, I discussed this earlier in a, in, like when I talk about sobriety, I discuss this a lot. I'm a, cause you know, I'm going to school to be a therapist. I'm really big into trauma recovery and like finding the roots of things. Um, you know, like I, I, my belief is like, you know, if you think you have a drinking problem, you can, you can quit drinking. Um, but I don't think that solves the problem. I think there, you know, there's, there's usually a, there's something behind it, right? There's a reason, there's a reason we do everything really. There's a reason, you know, that uh, I don't know. There's a reason I, I walk this certain way that I walk. There's a reason I, mm -hmm. I you know, brush my teeth the way I brush my teeth. Um, and just like that, you know, there's reason for why you do everything else. And I see it when I, when I talk to people that are other people that are sober, if they just quit and they like this, this, the substance, whatever that may be is the problem. 
and so I don't do that, so the problem's gone. Uh, those, and I could be wrong, I'm theorizing out loud, but like those are typically the people I'm most likely that I see like to relapse at some point because mm-hmm. um, they're not doing like the underlying work. And that's part of the 12 steps, right? Like doing the inventory yep. and all that. So I'm wondering, do you feel like you described yourself as like a workaholic and you know, going a million miles an hour until, you know, your heart was like, not anymore. (laughs) So did you get that clarity, that like sobriety clarity during those first nine years or 10 years while you were sober? Or were you replacing it with, with work and with being a mom and with everything else? You know what I mean? It's a really, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the first four or five years in sobriety, I had removed the alcohol and drugs, but I had not dug into any of the work on myself. Um, so a lot of the same behaviors were still there, lying, cheating, stealing, sleeping around things. I didn't like after I did them, but I kept doing them. I'm familiar. Um, yeah. (laughs) Right. And so probably around four or five years sober, um, I had a really bad, um, period chunk of time of depression and i it's not the first time i had gone through it but it was the first time i had gone through depression so severe in sobriety and that one really kind of brought me to my knees and i um ended up getting medical attention and ended up getting on a, a prescription to help with that which really helped um, and so, and at, it was at that point though, cause I got so scared cause there were these thoughts in my head that I couldn't control. And it's hard to understand that when it's like, okay, I can't blame the thoughts on drinking or drugs. So now I'm realizing, no, the real, I am the problem. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I really threw myself into 12 step work and I did it honestly and thoroughly and rigorously. And I really started doing a lot of service work and I started going to therapy. Um, but yes, I absolutely transferred a part of my alcoholism into workaholism. Um, but I also, that's when a lot of, you know, they call them the promises started coming true. Like a lot of good things started happening for me. My career really took off right around that four or five year sober part. Um, and so really the growth, the, I was sober for the first five years, but I became recovered in the second five years. And now I really do consider myself recovered with a daily maintenance program. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what you take the six weeks off, you don't go back to the paper or the magazine or the, yeah, you're at the magazine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And what, what do the next eight years look like that bring you to the sober curator and kind of what you're doing now and, and the TV station and like, what is all that? How, what are the steps that get you to that point? Yeah. So the first, I took the six, six ish months off. And like I said, became really good at not working. I was volunteering a lot. Um, I was, um, traveling quite a bit. I was walking dogs and going to the park every day and just really focusing on self-care and balance and myself and like really like looking at what works for me. What's, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where do I go from here? And, you know, at this point, my son has grown. He was still living with me at that time, but soon after he moved out. So I was like on the verge of becoming an empty nester. I'm still single. And it's for the first time I'm like, I've always lived in Washington, right? We we've determined that. So I was like, I could go to New York. I could go to LA. What? I mean, I have all these relationships across the country. I could go work for a big magazine. What do I want to do? And so I started kind of like, I built, I built a website that kind of was like a portfolio of all the events I had been throwing in Seattle. And I started doing some interviews in New York and San Francisco and kind of like playing that out. And the more that I was like doing research and things around it, I was like, okay, if I live in New York, that means I don't live in Seattle. And I know that seems really obvious, but it was like, and then I started thinking about the fact that like, for me in my industry, being in marketing and advertising and media, it's, it's really about your network and I'm a connector and I'm good at putting things together. And so the idea of having to go to another city and redo the network all over again, I mean, people joke now like, oh, just ask Elise, she probably knows them. Cause I know like half of Seattle, it feels like. And that I was not interested in. I was like, I don't know that I have that in me to do again. So if I'm going to stay here, what is it that I'm going to do? Yeah. 
And I love lifestyle content. I've always had a love for magazines. So leaving that job, it really felt, I mean, it was a hard blow on my ego because if I'm not that, then what am I? And so then I started taking a look at the local TV stations because it was like, okay, I've done print. I'm not really interested in radio. So I guess I'll look at TV. And I knew a lot of people at the stations. So I started talking to two different stations. They're um, very corporate for so slow moving. Um, I ended up taking a job at um, a tech website thinking, oh, this is it. I'll jump into the tech world because, you know, Seattle is such a tech city. So um, I was at a tech company for a couple of months and I loved it. Um, but I was not used to not being the boss and I was yeah. not the boss there. And it just wasn't exactly the right fit. Although I really am appreciative to the couple of months that I was there. Cause when I, when I took the job, I really wanted to be there, but then a position came available at the TV station that I work out now. That is literally the perfect job for me. I work on our local programs, handle it. I'm technically in the advertising sales department, but I work as the liaison between sales and our local programs. And we have two local shows that are on TV. One airs in the morning, like a morning talk show that's an hour long. One films out in the field that is um, a lifestyle. It used to be called Evening Magazine, and now it's just called Evening. But they basically cover all the things that I covered at the magazine, restaurants, you know, locally owned small businesses, road trips, getaways, all those things. Um, and then since then, we've also developed a YouTube series. So that's what I do. I work on those shows and I am kind of like a bonus boss to all the salespeople. And um, I most recently got an additional title. So I'm technically my title is director of market development, which is basically director of new business. Yeah. But I most recently got a new title as the director of fun. <laughs> and that's the one I'm really going to own. Yeah. Um, and so get that on uh, a nameplate. So, right. Exactly. <laughs> Director of fun. Who doesn't want to be that DOF is what they call me. And so <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm just, you know, when we need, when we have a client that needs a creative outside of the box idea or something that is multifaceted, that includes broadcasts, it includes streaming, it includes content, it might include an event activation. I kind of put all those pieces together and then help. And I'm good at closing business. So I help, I'm like the closer, help get things done. And then, and then send that off and then I start something else. Yeah. So um, so it's the perfect job for me. They're a great company to work for. I've had so much fun there. I, I've almost been there five years and it's, it's just a great, it's a great place for me. So tell me about finding uh, or creating rather the Sober Curator in the last year what that so you know like many of us in the last year <laughs> of a pandemic turned out that i had a lot of extra time on my hands yeah. um and as you can tell i'm slightly an energetic person <laughs> Uh, and so it was like, I was like idling, idling, idling. And I, you know, I'd finished Netflix. I watched everything on Netflix. And so, um, and I had done some craft projects, um, but it was actually, <laughs> I, I ended up in another woman's memoir about her addiction and her path to sobriety. And I did not like how I was portrayed. Oh, Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And um, I definitely had some strong feelings about it. And uh, so my sponsor was like, you should probably look at your part in that and see what's, you know, where that resentment is really, where the root is, is yeah. coming. And what I realized is there was jealousy and envy that I knew I had always wanted to do something more around recovery because I've always been very public with my recovery in person. I've spoken at a lot of places. Um, even when I've like spoken at, um, uh, American Heart Association lunches or dinners, you know, my recovery usually is part of that story. And so I've been very open about it, but I've never been open about my recovery online on social media. I always have just been open about it where I could control who knew about it. Yeah. So in the last year, you know, I started paying attention to sober Instagram and sober TikTok and, and sober Facebook. And I started kind of seeing that there's this movement afoot that wasn't there five years ago or 10 years ago. Right. And when I got sober, like MySpace was happening and Facebook had just started. Yeah. Um, so I started paying attention to all of that, but then I was in this book and um, didn't didn't love how I thought I was portrayed. And what I realized was I was jealous and I was envious. And so and so I called my 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 friend and I was like, I'm jealous, I'm envious. That's my part. She's like, Okay, well, what are you gonna do about it? 
And I was like, well, I mean, I don't, I always thought I was going to write a book, but like, I don't, I'm not a writer. I I'm a good public speaker, but I, and so I was like, well, I guess I'll try writing how I talk. I don't know. So, um, but I had been, I had been thinking about this idea of building a website that was like this ultimate resource for sober people that would tell you all the best things you could find that had content related to sobriety, whether it was a TV show, movie, podcast, book review, mocktail, And everywhere that I looked for something like that, I wasn't finding it. There are sober magazines out there, but they were very clinical. And I'm a lifestyle pop culture girl. So I kept looking for this thing that didn't exist. And then I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to build it myself. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that is the strongest and scariest thing you can do. Um, I've been told to do that on a number of things and this, uh, the sentiment alone, I'm like, uh, no, 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 no. That sounds very scary. And in the times that I've followed through and done it have been like uber rewarding. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's great that you decided to do that. Cause Hey, we wouldn't be talking here if you didn't. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we wouldn't be besties now if I wasn't. And so I didn't, I didn't, Justin, I did not go in with a business plan. And you have to understand, I ran an award-winning lifestyle magazine for nearly a decade, right? But I was not the one writing the articles. I was not the graphic designer. I was not doing the social media. I was not doing the SEO. I was certainly not building the website, right? So, and I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm funding the entire thing off my own resources, which are, you know, (laughs) not that big. And so I was just like, well, I've got time. So I'm just going to teach myself how to do these things. And so, you know, we're not quite, we'll be one year old, August 1st was August 1st of 2020 is when I accidentally published the website before it was ready. (laughs) And then I didn't know how to unpublish it. So I was just kind of like, whatever. Um, so it started off me and and my friend Lisa, and there was the two of us. Um, and now, let's call it nine months later, there are 21 people contributing to the site. And we have a club on Clubhouse, and we have a podcast, and we have a newsletter, and we're, you know, on every social media site we can be. So there's something about it that people like, and I'm having fun doing it, but I still don't necessarily know what it is. Yeah, but it, it really is a great resource. Um for you know because sobriety for decades and decades it was it was shameful it was the basements of churches it was and and, you know this is this is fun this is like we're like actually probably got our shit together a little more than a lot of people and like we can have a good time and remember that good time and and then the amount of stuff available in that realm just keeps growing exponentially. Like I got into non-alcoholic craft beers three years ago and there was, I think two breweries <laughs> and, right, now, and now, look now at there's it. like nine or 10 and it's just more and more, uh, mm-hmm. all the time. So yeah, no, it, it's, it's great that that is that resource exists and I'm glad you put it together. Uh, anybody listening, that's the sober curator.com. And I think you're at sober, the sober curator on everything, right? Um, yes, yeah. at the sober curator. Yeah. And you know, my vision at first was kind of like a Yelp, but the reason that I don't like Yelp is why do I care about someone's opinion if I don't know that person and I don't know if I like their judgment, right? <laughs> so I didn't want it to be a Yelp, but I wanted to be this ultimate resource where the people that are like like yourself, you're the expert at NA Brews, right? Yeah. So you should be the one to write about that. Somebody else is the one to write about music. Somebody else is the one to write about book reviews. Somebody else is the one to talk about TV shows and entertainment. And so I just want it to be a representation of the amazing content and products and small businesses that are out there yeah. with people in recovery because being sober is cool. It's not boring. I'm not boring. You're not boring, right? I'm having a great time, and I haven't blacked out and slept with a stranger once since I got sober. <laughs> you know, I miss those days. Not really, um, but yeah, that, and, and it's it's a great resource. I'm I'm really happy you did it, and and I'm happy you're doing this. And I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate everything, uh, all the time you've taken and, and the story you told, and uh, helped me get to know you a little better. So. All right. Well, I, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot like That's, from childhood to, to today. Yeah. That was a lot and very concise. What time is it? A little, little over an hour. Not too bad. Yeah. Hey, you added out most of my bullshit and you're, you got a good song. <laughs> you and I have lots in common. My request is sent. We 
Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my episode with Elise Bryson. Oh my god. You guys, you know what I'm talking about now? You listen to the whole episode. Elise is a powerhouse, man. She has gone through so much crap. Can you believe all that when the shit hit the fan and uh, she had to have heart surgery and like uh, the dog died like so much shit at once and these continue to come out on top and she's got like I don't know she must have Red Bull in her veins maybe that's what happened to her heart because uh, she's just always got so much energy and I love this website the sober curator whether you are sober curious curious I can't talk that's not a requirement for the show whether you're sober curious or you're just like, like maybe you're full on sober like I am and you're looking for resources um, that are fun, fun resources, you know, not just a bunch of drab shit. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I'm super excited that I'm a part of that and doing my non-alcoholic beer reviews, which, yeah, by the way, I started that over the summer. If you guys don't know that yet, I have a YouTube channel as well as contribute to the sobercurator.com and do non-alcoholic craft beer reviews. And I have a blast doing it, though I'm a little overwhelmed because I have literally a freaking fridge full of different types of non-alcoholic craft beer. And I do an episode a week and I'm like, oh my God, I literally have the next year of episodes in my fridge right now. <laughs> There's so many different kinds. Uh, so <laughs> we'll see how that plays out. But the, you guys, you got to check it out. Do some research. Find her online. Uh, the Sober Curator, Elise is amazing. The people that contribute are amazing. Uh, I'm just so privileged to have been able to sit down. So Thank you so much. Season three continues. I, I'm loving these interviews. I think there's one more Zoom interview before you guys get to hear people in person again, which, oh my God, it's just the best. It's just the absolute freaking best. I love it. I love you. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, check out patreon.com slash friend request pod. Uh, it's, it's where everything's happening, guys. In fact, those people may have already listened to this episode. I don't know. Things are crazy. So it's exciting. Let's get crazy. High five. Go all the way. Go team. You're awesome. I'm rambling. I love you. Okay, bye.